Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today we're talking politics in the media, ahead to 2024, and looking back at 2008, 2016, and more with longtime politics observer and documenter Mark Halperin. This is episode 53. Halperin has been a journalist at ABC, NBC, Time Magazine, Bloomberg, and more, written best-selling books that became award-winning movies, now is the founder of the Wide World of News Concierge Coverage, different business model altogether. We're going to get to that later. We talk about his career, the successes, and his exit from the scene in 2017. But we begin with a look at 2024, what to expect from the year ahead in politics and the media. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, I, uh, we've talked a lot. I was looking back in my research for this uh, last night. I think we've talked uh, quite a bit on the phone and uh, over email over the last uh, four years or so, um, but I've never talked publicly uh, on a recording. So I'm glad, I'm glad we're doing it. Uh, nice, a lot nice to get to. Be here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I'm glad to have you. Uh, we, we've uh, I want to talk about the past, uh, the present, um, uh, the future. Uh, but, um, what you're doing now, some of the past, uh, campaigns, but I actually do want to start with, with a little look ahead, um, what's happening in 2024, uh, what you're seeing, given your deep history, it feels to me and in other conversations that I've had, like we are headed for what will be, you know, potentially the craziest political year that we've seen ever, you know, potentially in a very long time at the same time, maybe people say that all the time. Uh, so I don't know what, what are you seeing right now as you look at both sides of the aisle and what's ahead over this next year? Well, since, since the focus of your work is the media, I'll start with the media part of it is I, I think that, that because of all the trends that you so well document in the media in terms of partisanship, in terms of the, the absence of, of sustainable business models, in terms of superficiality. I do worry that, that, that we are as little equipped to handle protecting the public interest over the next year as we've ever been yeah. um, in the media. So we can talk more about that. On the presidential election side, it, it on paper should be amongst the most boring campaigns because it's a rematch and the public's not very interested in these two candidates. Trump has a movement, Biden doesn't. So a lot of people interested in Trump, but tens of millions of people uh, have rejected this show that that it looks like they're going to be subjected to. At the same time, pretty much every Republican I know tells me with abject certainty that Biden will not be the Democratic nominee. They can't explain how that will happen in a linear way, but they say he won't be. And they might be right. My spidey sense says they're right, even though there's nothing I know in my reporting that says that's the case. And on the Republican side, it's the same thing. Republicans, Democrats believe Trump will be convicted in one of the criminal trials before the convention and that that somehow will lead to his not being the nominee. So if either of them ends up not being the nominee, I think it's safe to say that it will be super exciting. If they both end up being the nominees and there's no third strong third choice, which there may or may not be, it could be pretty boring. That's interesting. So, so as we know, though, there is like the, like you mentioned right at the end there, there are these potential triggers like, yes. So it could be Trump Biden still Biden could be this, uh, you know, are they going to push him out at some point? What happens uh, at a convention or if he wins and then the 
you know, push him out before he takes off. Who knows? There's that. There's obviously the Trump. Is he in jail while he's running? And what happens if he wins while he's in jail? You know, who knows? So there's like, there's those aspects of it. But yeah, I mean, you got Cornell West, you got RFK Jr. I know you were associated with no labels uh, left earlier this year. They have said that if it's Trump Biden, they'll run their candidate uh, or or their, their... So do you think that that's viable? I mean, it usually isn't these third party elements, but if it's right. as razor thin as the margin is now uh, right. between Republicans and Democrats, and everyone doesn't like their choices, could it play a role? Right. So I have to resist snapping the head off of people who ask me about Cornell West and RFK Jr., because I don't think there's any way they're going to get on the ballot. Hmm. Uh, West is now saying he's not going for every state. Getting on any state is really hard. It takes millions of dollars and a lot of discipline and professional signature gathered. And, and there aren't very many firms in the country left that do professional signature gathering. So I'd be very skeptical of those who think either of those guys are going to be on the general election ballot in in many states, maybe any state. And I'm not really sure what they're thinking. I can't get straight answers out of them about how they think they're going to pull that off. No Labels has been at it for, for a couple of years, right. has raised a lot of money, hired very good people with a lot of experience in how to do this. And none of those things are true about Cornell West or Bobby Kennedy. No Labels has a, had a theory of the case from the beginning, which is not to run to spoil the election, not to run to help the Democrats or help the Republicans, but to provide an insurance policy if that's what's needed. Because if it's Trump Biden and if Trump looks like he's ahead, and right now Trump is ahead in the yeah. battleground states and nationally, then uh, tens of millions of Americans are going to want an insurance policy. Those who say history demonstrates that that, that a third choice can't win. I think I think they're they're being making themselves prisoners to history to saying past is always prologue because there's there's a number of things that are different. I'll say them briefly. If you want to drill down, we can, of course. Yeah. First is the mood of the country in general. Uh, you know, the people don't align with the two parties the way they once did. That's a long-term trend that, that continues. And as you know, in several states, maybe many states at this point, the most common thing is for someone to be an independent or a non-aligned voter. Second is people are very unhappy with the prospects of Biden versus Trump and um and uh and and want a third choice could be by the time we get to january if trump and, and biden are the de facto nominees which on the current trajectory they will be by february one i think you'll see and i think you could see 80 percent of the american people saying they want another choice never seen numbers like that right third third is um no labels intention is to have one Democrat and one Republican, a bipartisan national unity ticket of two people who, by biography and political inclination, contrast pretty sharply with Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Joe Biden and Donald Trump, if they run against each other, they'll be trying to turn out their partisans. So a bipartisan unity ticket would not just be trying to appeal to Democrats, independents, or independents, moderates, and centrists but also to those who are Democrats and Republicans who believe the country's way forward is not with four more years of Joe Biden and not with four more years of Donald Trump, but with a bipartisan unity ticket. And lastly, I'll say that the ability to raise money in the internet age, in the digital age, is 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 very robust. And I think if you think about how does a, a ticket raise money, being given ballot access in, in, in lots of the states without their having to lift a finger, they can most billionaires I know would be very attracted to a bipartisan unity ticket. If it's two great candidates, then it must be two great candidates. And I think on the internet, they could raise a lot of money too, because I think you'd see a grassroots support for that, again, for those who don't want to see Trump or Biden. 
And again, last I'll say, if Trump's ahead and Biden-Harris, I say the Biden-Harris purposely, if Trump is ahead and Biden-Harris looks weak and fading, a lot of people who now are deriding what No Labels is doing are going to thank them from the bottom of their heart for having the foresight to have an insurance policy. Yeah, well, that that would really throw a wrench into the whole process. I mean, that would, again, make the chaos more chaotic, um, but fun, uh, you know, for people who cover yeah. it on the outside. And, uh, you know, as I've written about, don't have an overriding horse in the race. I know, you know, you you don't just from reading your writing as well um, as a uh, as an observer of the process. It, it could be it could get crazy. Now we turn to the topic of change and how Halperin's front seat to the Trump phenomenon from New York City sets and traveling throughout the country gave him a really unique view. I want to look back now because I think if there's a theme of the rest of this podcast, it's going to be about change. Um, and, and I want to try to drill down to when when things changed on a couple of different fronts. Um, and I I think we, we obviously have to start with 2015, 2016 um, and, and the Donald Trump phenomenon. Uh, you were, you know, on the set of Morning Joe, uh, many of those mornings when Donald Trump was calling in and talking with, with Joe and Mika and you, uh, you, you know, were a co-host of the the circus, which uh, was aptly named. And I don't think you necessarily knew how it was all going to play out. And I, I have to say, you know, I went back and I was doing some research this week, just you, I, I think, you know, more so than most people, certainly at that on MSNBC, before Donald Trump was elected, understood that it was possible that he could win. Uh, and and I, I think that there, you know, that, that response, the idea, not that, you know, that you support him or that he should win, but that he, it was possible was very much not known there. And it forced a sort of change. It was like this jolt to the system. And I, I wonder how much you think of that, of, about that time and, and how that changed things in so many different fields in so many different ways after 2016. Well, I, I, you know, I started touting Trump as potentially a, a national candidate, a successful national candidate in 2011 after I saw him give a speech at CPAC. It's actually how I met him wow. uh, because I went on Morning Joe and I said nice things about the speech he gave at CPAC. And as I always say, Donald Trump is a complicated man in many ways, but he's simple in others. If you say nice things about him on television, he likes you. <laughs> so I started a conversation with him and in 2015 and 2016, I think I went to about 30 states in covering Trump rallies. And to this day, I am amazed at at the failure of so many seemingly smart people to not understand what Trump is about, why it is that he's going to be in, why he's in line to be the nominee for the third time, why it is that um, he, he's the front runner, I believe, currently to be president. And I'll say, as I always do. I'm not rooting for him or predicting he'll win. I'm simply telling you he has a movement and Joe Biden doesn't. And uh, and and so so much changed about our politics and our media because of Trump. And you've chronicled that as well as anyone. Uh, some of our major media organizations in this country, The New York Times, CNN, NBC, Fox News. I could go on their their business models, their relationship to their audience their uh their style of covering politics has been has been shattered and in some cases successfully rebuilt simply because of donald trump now there's cross currents and and parallel currents that that are connected but i don't think there's any doubt that if it weren't for donald trump we wouldn't have seen the history of those those mammoth news organizations evolve the way they did and lastly i'll say it continues the inability 
of so many smart people in media to understand what Trump is about and what his movement is about and to, as a mature professional, do your job correctly where you put the public interest ahead of your own interests or some political interest or the interest of a politician is very troubling to me. I, I've really, I've really been uh, disappointed in people's seeming inability to grapple with this, and and it continues. And it started certainly in 2015, and 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 you know we're gonna we're gonna get to 10 years of Trump if if he wins more, but if he loses, we'll get to 10 years of Trump, 2015 to 2025, where his impact will be unprecedented in American history in all sorts of ways. Yeah, it's uh, it's. It's sad, but true. Uh, I I, I want to just go back, though, because I, I think when I was really going back and looking at what your experience must have been like, particularly in 2016, you had these parallel paths that truly I felt like no one else in the country had. You know, the Selena Zitos of the world were seeing it on the ground, but you were seeing it on the ground with the circus and what you were in and the amount of I didn't realize how many episodes of the circus there was in 2016 before the election. You know, it was really a a tracking of that going to 30 states, like you say. And you were also there in the newsrooms of MSNBC and, and and elsewhere and in that world too, and seeing this this total disconnect it, it must have been like. I, I I wonder what that must have been, you know, to see that play out. Well, the very first scene, the very first episode of the circus uh, is shot by me on my iPhone backstage at a Donald Trump rally in Pensacola, Florida. And and in that sequence where you hear Trump announced and then walk out on stage and you see the crowd reaction, uh, there's a lot about media and politics and 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 the history of the last decade uh, embedded in just that one scene. And I, I, I understand the point you're making about it. I, I won't say I was unique in in the role I, I had, but I think. Uh, for the reasons you said, but if you add in the fact that I identified Trump in 2011 right. as someone who could run, I do think there, there weren't a lot of people sitting in the seat I was sitting in. And uh, and uh, uh, again, I look back at in some frustration. I don't know in your reviewing for the for the recording we're doing today, if you looked at the clip of me and Brian Williams a few days mm -hmm. before Election Day. But yeah, uh, but Brian Williams, Brian Williams accused me of being excessively bullish on Trump's chances on on a network on which I hosted a show on a network in which I was a, a, a political analyst. And 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 um, I was dumbfounded at the time because it seemed obvious to me that Trump could win. And right. I wasn't again, I wasn't predicting he would win. And I wasn't rooting for him to win. I just said, as you said before, that I said he could. Yeah. And that moment to me is one that I cite all the time. Another is at the at at um at some news organizations in 2015 and talking to my colleagues, I learned they weren't plan they weren't intending to sign a, a reporter to cover Trump. They they said, you know, we're gonna cover, you know, all these other candidates, we'll cover Chris Christie and Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, but we're not gonna sign a reporter to cover Trump. Right. And I said to my colleagues, like, yeah, you really need to cover Trump because it was clear that he was tapping on immigration and crime and trade and China and Mexico. And NATO, it was clear he was tapping into something, and yet it took so long for people to take him seriously. And I'll say one last thing: joking around with Trump, I, and and I get why people are critical of, of of what happened on the set of Morning Joe, which included, by the way, um, Eugene Robinson, for instance, liberal Washington Post columnist. I've watched the clips many times of of Gene joking around with Trump. 
after he was the leader of the birther movement, right? Oh yeah. Um, there, there, there's, there's, uh, there's a, there's a tendency to say that that in 2015, because of the birther movement, we shouldn't have Trump shouldn't have been on TV. His rally shouldn't have been covered. And and there's no doubt, as you've written about, that what CNN did and others covering the Trump rallies live in retrospect was insane was insane to make those programming decisions. But Trump's a big story, was a big story than it is now. And Trump had good relationships with reporters, including liberal reporters. And I think if people want to look back and say, I was too close to Trump because I rode with him on a Zamboni in Central Park, go ask Gene Robinson why he was yucking it up with Trump on Morning Joe after Trump was the leader of the birth movement. And I think Gene's reasons would be very similar to mine. It was a story we were professionally obligated to cover. And to cover it in a way that was conducive to uh, uh, bringing out the truths about things. And one way to do that is to be friendly to the people you cover. Not saying be friendly to Osama bin Laden, but right. uh, Trump's the, a nominee of the Republican Party now. So, or, oh, or I mean, a lot, a lot of ways to go with that. I mean, he was hosting the, the, the Apprentice in 2015. I mean, for many yeah. years after this birther movement yeah. thing, he was hosting yeah. Saturday Night Live in November 2015. Right. And uh, and I, for media nerds like myself who have a vague recollection of that Brian Williams moment you, you cite, and I went back and watched it last night, uh, it's, it's even better now. It's like just chef's kiss even more so because, yeah, you're even saying... Hillary Clinton, it's it's more likely than not that Hillary Clinton wins, but there's a chance. That's all. That's the point we're making here. And obviously it was proven right days later. Coming up, we turn back to 2008, 2012, and then October 2017 at the height of Me Too. That's next. But first, I want to give you a little bit of from my latest column at The Hill, where I'm writing weekly now, which is headlined, A Media That Lies to Itself Will Lie to You Too. It's about Israel and the uh, really poor coverage that we've seen across the board, but particularly from places like the New York Times and from some of the more, let's just say, anti-Israel voices in the mainstream media from the LA Times, the Washington Post that we're seeing on X, formerly known as Twitter. We're seeing a, a Beltway media, or the Acela media as I often describe it, disconnected from the average American, terrified of getting backlash on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, lying to themselves in the service of anti-Israel sentiment. They seem to instinctually believe a Hamas propaganda arm, often the Gaza Health Ministry, or describe hostages as being, quote, detained by a terror group. Why? Because they see no incentive not to. They lie to themselves and it reverberates throughout all their coverage and has a significant after effect. It's clear to the audience that a, a media that will lie to itself will lie to them as well. All the stories that we've seen work to confirm the priors of the journalists taking the ethically derelict actions, but it also represents a broader press so willing to lie to itself in the service of a very specific narrative, rendering it fully untrustworthy to a discerning audience that deserves a media it can count on when a story is as important as this one. Find more at the Hill's opinion section. More with Mark Halpern coming up, but I want to tell you that the Fourth Watch newsletter is on Substack still for the rest of 2023. It's completely free. So just go and sign up, get extra written content at fourthwatch.media. That's fourthwatch.media. Now, back to Mark Halpern. I want to talk about 2008 um, uh -huh. and your book, uh, another talk about, speaking of change, game change, Obama and the Clintons, McCain and Palin, and the race of a lifetime. And 
You know, it does feel like as people think, oh, Donald Trump was the big change. I wonder how much of 2008 was also a change uh, uh, in terms of how politics became part of the culture. Uh, Obama himself uh, as a figure there, but also Sarah Palin, obviously, as a figure there. And then also the coverage around it. I mean, Game Change was a fantastic movie uh, that, that I, I've, been, I've watched several times. And obviously, it started with a fantastic book that covered the real life story of it. How much of that do you think kind of started the ball rolling here? Yeah, thank you on the book. Um, look, Nixon was on laughing. Bill Clinton played the saxophone on Arsenio Hall and on The Tonight Show. Um, the 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 what happened to politics in 2008 is what happened to everything in 2000 or circa 2008, which is social media and digital allowed everything to be covered obsessively. So. Um, what happened in 2008 was a marriage, again, luck of history, a marriage of the explosion of digital with some incredible characters. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt that when you have, you know, I, 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 you know, John Edwards was like the fourth most interesting story in 2008, right? You had the, the rise of Barack Obama. You had the tragedy of the Clintons, the comic tragedy of the Clintons. You had Sarah Palin. You had John McCain's comeback. You had the decline of Rudy Giuliani, who was the front runner for a while. And then you have John Edwards. The John Edwards story is an incredible story. And yet it's the fourth or fifth or sixth most interesting story of that cycle. So having all those personalities, you know, the reason Game Change, I think, was successful commercially and, and somewhat critically, although more successful commercially, is because great storytelling requires great characters. When the, when the movie Game Change was being made, the, the director said to me, like some, I'm paraphrasing, something like 90% of movie making is casting. Right. And 90% of great, of great political storytelling, nonfiction storytelling is casting, right? The, the 2008 cycle had these extraordinarily larger-than-life figures who, even before 2008, were part of the popular culture. Not all of them. Palin wasn't. She wasn't known. But the Clintons were. Barack Obama was. Not for a huge, but for, for four years he had been. John yeah. McCain had been the most popular politician in America for eight years. Um, Fred Thompson ran that year, too. Rudy right. was America's mayor. Right? These are these are larger than life characters. A, a, a much higher percentage. This is not, this is not you know, this is not uh, a normal cycle. But again, the reason why it, it, it feels as you're correctly casting it as a watershed moment and, and where it's, I think he says like, like where politics became part of the, the broader popular culture, I think is the confluence between the technology and the cast of characters. Yeah, it was, it was an incredible cast. It was an incredible book. Um, what about some of the other ancillary members of that cast? I mean, Nicole Wallace, where she's ended up with MSNBC, Steve Schmidt, <laughs> what happened to him? These are, these are the seminal figures in the McCain campaign. What do you make of where they have ended up in our current culture now, 15 years later? Sorry, more well, than that. Yeah. Look, I, I think that 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 there's obviously a through line between Palin's place in the Republican Party and Trump's, right? They are ideologically, uh, culturally, um, attitudinally, politically uh kindred. And they're and they're friends, and, and there's a reason for that. So so those two uh, initially reacted to their place in the Republican Party and their view of the Republican Party in the context of John McCain choosing Sarah Palin and what right. she represented. Their alienation from the party in full, of course, came from Trump. And th they're not they're they're very visible in that respect. 
but I have I have members of my of my political coverage and, and readers of my newsletter and and people I know across the country who feel exactly the same way they do, who who believe that the Republican Party was hijacked by Donald Trump and that his 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 the fact that he's not a conservative on so many issues and the fact that his political uh, his disregard for for norms and for and for some of the hallmarks and, and bench uh, foundations of our democracy mean he shattered the Republican Party they joined, right? So they they, they you're, I understand why you're singling them out and sort of what's happened to them because they're they're now in in political media uh, with an, an orientation that is almost a hundred percent based on antipathy towards Trump and what he represents and what he's done to the party that that in in they grew up professionally in. But there's a there's there's tens of millions of stories like that about Republicans who who are so unhappy about what's happened to their Republican Party. Most of them are still in the Republican Party. Most of them will vote for Donald Trump if he's if he's the nominee. Right. But they feel pretty similarly to Nicole Wallace and, and Steve Schmidt regarding Trump's impact on the country, on our culture and on the Republican Party they grew up in. It's a fascinating one. Uh, I, I wanted to I want to talk a little bit about what you're doing now, but before we do that, go back and then kind of trace uh, the path. Because uh, I was going back and looking at um, 2004 New Yorker write up about the note, uh, the very influential, uh, you know, sort of like an early newsletter, I guess. You know, it was a, a blog uh, for ABC News that you were writing, which I saw. You know, depending on your perspective on it, uh, people I've seen writing about it, you know, calling it seamlessly snobbish, but, you know, read by all of the, the most influential people in Washington. Um, it's interesting. And, I, I, and yet we have these conversations now and I, I, you know, we'll talk about kind of what you're doing now. I, I wonder, like, did you, do you have sort of a perspective shift in the way of being so inside of, uh, you know, at like the absolute pinnacle of the elite DC circles and then, and then broadened out whether it was through, uh, 2016 or beyond or other factors that shifted kind of the way you think about the media and what your output is based on kind of what you were doing back in 2004 at the yeah. height of it. Yeah. Well, first of all, I haven't lived in DC, which is where I grew up in the DC area. I haven't lived there since 1994. Okay. Uh, when I, when I became the political director of ABC news, uh, in, um, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in, in 98, I asked my bosses if rather than doing the job from DC, where it had historically been done, the job of plug director, if I could do it uh, from ABC headquarters on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I told them I wanted to be more in touch with the real lives of real people. That's a joke. You can play the laugh track when post. <laughs> um, but but it was sort of true, right? Because because as much as New York is its own kind of ridiculous bubble, and I know you know that uh, well, it's not the DC bubble. Yeah, and and so. I've, tr I've covered politics in, in every state but Hawaii, and I think I've always, as a hallmark of my career, focused on talking to real people across the country and on making politics about improving the lives of real people, not about the inside game. That's really what I believe is the role of journalism. And 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 I think one of the challenges that's been around from, from the history of journalism is how do you tell the stories of policy choices? and of the real lives of real people in a way that the people who consume journalism want it. Right. I don't really like to be called a political reporter. I like to think I'm someone who covers America. And I cover it through the prism of politics. Now, that having been said, the newsletters I write are extraordinarily inside. 
They are not for the general public. They are not about how to save Head Start. They're not about uh, whether the infrastructure bill is being successfully implemented. I, I'm pretty, for, for someone who covers campaigns mostly, I'm pretty well versed in those things. And yeah. I can talk about and I can talk about them. But that's not generally what I write about. I write about the personalities of the people who want to lead us, not just presidents, but senators and House members and governors. And I write about the inside machinations that are um, the, 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 the orchestra music of insiders, what I call the gang of 500. Right. I wish I could write about the other stuff and I wish the other stuff was more saleable, but I have found that my experience and my, uh, uh, my capacity to explain things is most in demand when I write the very inside stuff I do. And so I, I, I'm not, I'm not a celebrant of the kind of, of kind of uh, stuff I do to the exclusion of Head Start and infrastructure and, and NATO. Again, I can talk about all those things and I do on occasion, but from the note to the stuff, to the page that I did at Time Magazine, to the wide world of news concierge coverage I'm doing now, I don't, I don't pretend that I'm writing policy papers. I'm covering the daily drumbeat, the daily rhythm of our political and media elites. Right, right. But you know, and particularly what, what you're doing now, I know, in, informed um, through these conversations with uh, with everyday voters throughout the country, which I think is just so important. Um, I want to ask about that, but I want to do touch on. Uh, speaking of change, um, you know, October 2017, height of Me Too. And you, there were incidents that were written about from the late nineties, early two thousands, um, you know, obviously a major career change after that you went on, I know with, uh, Michael Smarconish, I I think I saw a video also of you being interviewed by a a woman. I couldn't find that on on YouTube, but also with Michael Smarconish a couple of years later, talked about that, apologized uh, for some aspects of it. But I, I guess I wanted to ask you before we talk about what's what you're doing now, kind of the randomness, if you will, of cancellation for lack of a better term. There's no playbook for it. Uh, there's no, you know, it's, it's just interesting to me as you look at it from an outside perspective, how there is no, the the litigation of this, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't shake out in any logical way necessarily or any um, consistent way. And I just wonder as you, as you think about it and, and your own situation with sort of the rest of everything else that's gone on in the movement, um, what you think is behind it? Well, I have lots of friends who've been canceled, and and I'll talk about them as opposed to about myself. Um, there is a randomness to it. Um, the 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 um, the right to due process in a court of law is not always adhered to, but it, but but it's guaranteed in the Constitution and 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 in laws. Um, the right to due process in the the workplace is and in society is not and there's there's a number of people and not just in terms of me too an important movement to make sure that workplaces are safe and fair but in uh in in other reasons people are canceled for all sorts of reasons there's a a failure to um uh to worry about the not just the rights but the equities of all involved including those accused that I find to be pretty random. That doesn't mean that people who do things they shouldn't do shouldn't suffer consequences or face consequences. And it doesn't mean that our expectation of society is that it can always be perfectly equitable and fair and 
and and every consideration be taken into account. But I do think that um, that again, I have a lot of friends whose whose lives and the lives of their families have been upended or worse because of something that a series of events. This is men and women that you just you couldn't look at fairly, which journalists rarely do. You couldn't look at fairly and say what happened to that person is commensurate to what they were accused of, let alone what they actually did. Right. And I think that's that's unfortunate. And I, I, I just my heart breaks for my friends and for their children, whether their children are young or, or, or grown up. My heart breaks for them because they're they're left not really being able to understand why their families were turned upside down based on accusations. Yeah, I, I wonder if the pendulum is is swinging in the other direction in, in the sense of of where our culture is. I, I don't know if it is yet, but it is. It's definitely something that it feels like it, it's a it's a media story as much as it's, it's a culture story because of how how it's driven by forces both good and bad in the media. Mm-hmm. I, I would say. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Uh, let me ask you about wide world of news, wide world of news concierge coverage. Uh, uh-huh. You know, really a, a must-read newsletter that you know I, I, I've I've mentioned to many people uh, for a long time. But also, you know, kind of what you're doing now and how you've transitioned that. Um, uh-huh. Tell me about kind of the what it, what you're doing, but also I think what it says about the state of the media and what the opportunities are as we as we look at a media world and as we you know approach 2023, 2024. Yeah. I'm very blessed to have a community of people across the country that includes governors, senators, uh, Biden administration officials, senior Trump campaign officials, and then regular people who have no professional connection to politics whatsoever. Some regular corporate lawyers, some regular people, uh, CEOs of companies, but then literally truck drivers and farmers and honey, honey growers uh, and um uh, an avocado grower is one of my readers members. Uh, and, and, and w- w- what I've learned in creating this is taken what was a newsletter that I gave away for free and accepted voluntary contributions for into something I call concierge coverage, which includes uh, various, uh, uh, zoom to categories of zooms that people can get on and you buy an expensive package. There's, t- there's a Mario and uh, there are two tiers, Mario and Luigi in honor of my son's favorite movie. And these cost a lot more than a newsletter, but you're not just getting the newsletter, which comes out every day, by the way, I've written it um, every day for over three years without missing a day, seven days a week, not five days a week by myself, but you get these zooms. And and at first, when I proposed this business model, some of my friends and associates, I was thinking of launching one tier costs uh, 3,600, one costs 4,800 a year paid up front. They said, well, that's a lot for a newsletter. And the only other thing you're really adding is Zooms. Who who wants to pay to be on more Zooms? <laughs> and and what I have found is, is a lot of satisfaction for the people who are members of my community because these are Zooms unlike any other, I, I say with, with, um, with some bravado, uh, because the conversations are mostly about politics, about international relations too. Uh, cable news, as you know, well, is usually dumbed down somewhat short conversations that are, that are for the lowest common denominator. And they're only typically now for one side, right? Not a lot of red, blue conversations. There's some, but not a lot. And they're short, right? There's, you know, a couple minutes. These zooms are 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. Once a month, we do a salon conversation that's 90 minutes. 
And we bring together leading voices, some people have heard of and some not. You know, Newt Gingrich, Doug Sosnick, who was Bill Clinton's political director, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas. Yeah, so people, people, people in both parties who are willing to come and have civil conversations, long extended civil conversations. There's no anger on these Zooms. There's no uh, crossfire. There's no, you know, Donna Brazil fighting with some some McConnell aide on a CNN set. Right. These are these are searches for understanding and reconciliation and truth and trading interesting stories about politics and analysis about what's going on. So so in terms of a business model, I think that the main insight I've taken away from it for the media and lots of our colleagues who work at large news organizations pepper me with questions about it. You want the biggest audience possible, right? Every if you can have if you can have a thousand podcast listeners, you'd rather have that than five hundred. If you can have two hundred thousand, you'd rather have that than one hundred thousand. But I think there's there's a there's an economic model in the notion of the qualitative relationship you have to your current audience, whether you call them subscribers or readers or members. The closer people are bound to you, the more they're reliant on you for your your analysis, your entertainment, your convening of them with other interesting people, the more you can charge them. Yeah. And my members pay a lot more than they pay to read a political newsletter because they value the newsletter a lot. They want to hear from me as a creator with a distinctive voice, but they also want to be part of that community. And that I think is something that a network, television broadcast network or cable network or the New York Times, the Washington Post, I think they could learn from because I think the qualitative relationship of being part of a community with consistent voices as well as new voices and voices where a thousand voices can bloom, I think is extraordinarily important and 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 can be quite lucrative. And I'm working on a new project, which I'm not going to talk about today, but you'll have me back and we'll discuss it when it's a little more ripe. Uh-huh. That that is predicated on the, those exact that exact principle that that if you give people a chance to interact with if you give if you if you do three things you give people a sense of community you allow prominent people whether they're content creators meaning journalists or politically important people powerful people if you allow regular people the access to interact with them in a two way conversation that's valuable and then third let a thousand voices bloom. Be a place that says, you know what? If Matt Gates is available, I'd love to have Matt Gates on. If AOC is available, I'd love to have AOC on, and I'll treat both of them with respect. Right, right. That that those seem to me to be three pretty fundamental things that 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 there's a consumer demand for that I don't see a lot of people doing. Yeah, and, and it, I'm yeah. I'm glad I'm glad to be able to do them because it really is rewarding work for me. No, it's great, and it does bring together a couple different you know values to talk about, which which seem like a very current, you know, present moment situation, obviously, we're in a post pandemic world where I think, you know, people want to have community, uh, want to have connection. Mm-hmm. They're, they're also this, you know, I was thinking it's kind of a polar opposite from maybe the mass appeal of a game change. Um, but it, this could not really exist back in 2008 or 2010. Like it just, there wasn't a model for this, I don't think. And I know you talk about um, the thousand voices blew my, there were uh, a thousand true fans by uh, John Ellis of uh, political news items is a great piece that writing about you and, and your business model. And it does seem like, you know, this, this kind of intimacy that people want, it's not something that maybe people in the media or people 
you know, in, in thinking of a business from the media perspective would have thought about, but now by the nature of just the way the media business is changing, like they're going to be forced to, I mean, it, it, this is maybe early of where things are headed also. Yeah, I agree. Look again, it's a little bit of an historical accident. Like we talked about with 2008, one is the technology exists. Yeah. I can do these things over zoom without a control room, without a studio camera, without a booker, right? I just I just send out a, a an invite over Substack and say here's a Zoom link and people show up. Right. Two is COVID, and COVID COVID for 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 three reasons. One, three elements. One is people, as you said, they are craving community. Even even though the the pandemic has largely passed, there aren't the same number of parties and dinner parties and conversations that they used to be. So that's one. Two is um, is. Uh, the expectation of the quality of video is lower, right? Networks network will take guests over Skype and zoom. And so having a, a media conversation for those of you on the podcast, I did some air quotes there, media conversation with lower quality video is, is fine for people. And then three is people's expectations about when things will happen is a lot more, if not 24, seven, you know, 25, 20, right? I could, yeah. I could announce I was doing a Zoom at seven in the morning or 10 at night, Eastern time. And people wouldn't think, oh, that's ridiculous. There's right. just a, an elongated sense of when stuff happens now because of the pandemic that allows me some scheduling flexibility. And I do my Zoom. Sometimes they're planned like the monthly salon conversation where I convene kind of a concentration of great voices. But I can do breaking news. If, uh, if a Supreme Court justice resigns or passes away, I can be having a, a, a community conversation over Zoom in right. an hour. And that's that's obviously different. And again, the, the expectations about the pandemic make that something that people wouldn't say, well, I need more notice than an hour. No, during the pandemic, an hour was plenty of time. We end with the Fourth Watch lightning round on Peter Jennings, Tucker Carlson, and more. Uh, last thing, six questions, 60 seconds. Where were you born? Cambridge, Massachusetts. My father was teaching at Harvard. You're the founder of the Wide World of News Concierge Coverage. What's one benefit and one cost of that role? You mean for me? Yeah. Benefit is I get to talk to nice people all over America on a daily basis. And a cost of the role is coming up with an idea, a creative idea for a newsletter every day. I'm sure it's chipping away at my brain. Uh, Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Uh, Peter Jennings, the former anchor of World News Tonight. Well, he, he used to live across the street from me, and I'm actually looking out my window now at his apartment, uh, oh, wow. his death, his death, um, you know, it was a loss for America, a loss for American journalism, loss for ABC news and very much a loss for me because he, he, he guided my career, uh, just with such, such grace and intelligence. Great. Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Uh, Oh, surprise people. I like everybody. I probably probably what would surprise people is like everybody, but I know that's not the answer you want. I can't. I don't know. I don't know what. I don't know what a good answer for that. It's going to know what surprise people. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I like Tucker. Probably okay. probably shouldn't say that, but I know you like Tucker, so I'm pandering to you, the host. <laughs> I, I I really I I don't like everybody. There's a, there's a short list of people I don't like, but I I generally like people. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, who's one person in the media you think's really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? Uh, isn't getting enough attention. Let's see. You know, he's not, you'll have to count this because everybody's in media, right? We are all content creators now. Uh, Liam Donovan, do you know him? 
Yeah, I know the he's name. He's a yeah. former Hill. He's a former Hill staffer, and he's a lobbyist in D.C. now. And he his Twitter account, I just yeah. I can't believe they're giving it away for free. His his X's are X's and O's to me. He writes about the presidential race. He writes about Congress uh, and and the speaker race and all that and and the and legislative process. He is a mad genius. He is amazing. And uh, so I'd say he he deserves more than he had not been in the New York Times recently. Like he's not invisible, oh, well. but he should be a household name. He is like the Tim Russert of the 21st century. There you go. All right. I'll look at LP Donovan for people who want to follow yeah, on. X. He's, he's right. awesome. Last thing, one year from today, what's one prediction for the media? For the media, uh, unfortunately, that we will not be the guardians of the public trust in the context of the 2024 election that we should be. I hate to say that, but I think I'm pretty confident in that prediction. Sad, but true. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for doing this. Steve, grateful to you. And I'll say, before you cut me off, and don't okay. cut this out in post, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm very fond of you personally, but I'm just a huge fan of what you've done. And you don't get written about enough because people tend to not write about media writers. That's just like a convention of the business. But your voice uh, in in what you cover and how you cover is is very distinctive. Often, when you write about things that is unique, you have a keen eye for aggregation, and most importantly, you're fearless and. And I am a huge fan of your work and proud to have been asked to be on the podcast. And don't cut that out. All right. I leave won't cut it out. No, thank in. you. Leave I will in. say I love I, I've always <laughs> loved getting emails from, from Mark, uh, especially because, you know, half the time they're they're You know, he's my ombudsman too, uh, telling me what I'm doing wrong or not. Oh, you're not perfect, dude. No, I love perfect, it. I love it. That, that's what I love about it, though. It's like I, I, I know it's it's true because the praise is true, but also the criticism. And I, yeah, I appreciate but, all but of it. I so. just I'm just I'm just so uh, uh, it'd be presumptuous of me to say I'm proud of you, but I'm glad that I'm glad that you're out there doing what you do. And I, I'm really impressed you've done it in an entrepreneurial way. And like I said, it's a tragedy that you don't get written about because your business model is every bit as interesting as mine. And and, and somebody should be interviewing you about you. Maybe you'll do an episode like that. That was nice. Thanks so much to Mark Halperin. Uh, always great talking to him. Uh, really a fascinating perspective. Go find him on Substack as well. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. Song is far from falling. Download it wherever you get your music. Download and follow, like, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast, Fourth Watch Podcast on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your free podcasts. Next episode is with Brian Stelter, returning to talk about his new book and more. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.